All right, all right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to walk us through the text this morning. And I want to just kind of begin with a brief question. Um, Have you ever had a conflict with someone that arose out of the fact that you were interpreting the situation differently, that you're seeing the same thing, but you're seeing the same thing differently? Uh, I remember when I was 18, I, this is going to make you also very grateful you weren't one of my roommates when I was 18. When I was 18, I was living with a, a group of guys, and one of my roommates was, uh, you know, 22, 23, you know, so he's very mature compared to me, who was, 20, who was 18 at the time. And I remember I walked out one time, and he was on our couch um, watching TV, and he just had on uh, you know, boxers, and he had a loaf of bread on his stomach, and a jar of peanut butter on the right, and a jar of jelly on the left, and two knives, and he was just kind of doing this thing. <laughs> Crumbs everywhere, stuff everywhere. And I'm, I'm 18 thinking like, what? Like, like I just saw a train wreck, you know? Like <laughs> just staring, what's going on? And he's going like, oh, this is so effective. It's so efficient. I'm like, I tell him, the kitchen's in there, you imbecile. And he's going, the judgment's in there too, you know, get out, you know, and watching whatever binge thing he was watching. And so... Um, I did what I thought was very loving. I took a picture of him doing that and posted it on Facebook. And I thought, (laughs) you know, and loving or not loving, it was effective. You know what he did? He stopped doing that. uh, And he's married today. And I take some credit for that. You know, that was was at least in part because of my um, healthy use of peer pressure or, anyway, so I'm not saying that that was the right response, but he saw this innovative, efficient opportunity and I saw an embarrassment to my species as a people. And, and so like, but the point was, is we saw the same thing and we saw it very differently. And this is the source or the conflict of a lot of what uh, goes on in different households and goes on in families and relationships. And that's just a very small example of the way that we don't just live in a world of facts, but we live in a world of our interpretation and our experience of those facts. We live in a world where we see people and we see them through lenses, we see them um, according to our lens, we see them according to uh, a, a narrative that we supply, we see them in the context of what things that we assume. Um, and this passage is actually about how Jesus tends to see people differently than we expect. That we might be looking at the same thing, looking at the same person in the same situation, and Jesus surprises us with what he sees versus what we see or what other people in the story see. And the question then is, if Jesus sees someone different than the way that I see them, then I am wrong, <laughs> and I need to change my perspective. And that's really, I think, what's going on. The main, the heart of this text is actually um, chapter 7, verse 44, when it says, Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? That Jesus sees something that Simon doesn't see. And he's saying, Simon, do you see what I see? The obvious answer to this question is no. Um, I don't see Jesus. So here's a question I'm going to ask us this morning in this text is, is this, is do we see what Jesus sees? When you encounter people in your life, when you encounter situations in your life, when you see hurting people, when you see struggling people, when you see judgmental people, when you see people's Facebook statuses, when you see them people at church, do you see what Jesus sees or do you see something else? Because I really believe that because of our sinful um, hearts, because of our pained, experienced backgrounds that we tend to supply all types of assumptions and creative ways of connecting the dots that... uh, are out of step with the way that Christ sees people. And so there's actually three people I want us to wrestle through. Do we see this person like Jesus sees this person? And I want us to say, do we see the woman 
the way Jesus sees the woman? Um, do we see Simon the way Jesus sees Simon? And do we see Jesus the way Jesus sees Jesus? Because this text is going to show us about how Jesus sees this woman, how Jesus sees the Pharisee Simon, and a little bit it's going to show us about how Jesus sees himself. So let's pray this morning, and we'll talk about whether we see like Jesus. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the way that you um, graciously bring us along. I pray that we'll see you and see you as beautiful, see you as compelling, that even in this text that we'd be um, surprised at how you're not just the way, you're not just the truth, you're not just the life, but you're also beautiful. Um, We don't follow you just because you're God, but we follow you because you're a compelling God. I ask for all of us this morning that not only will we see like you see, but we'll feel like you see us the way that you see these people in the story. Amen. Amen. So first things first, um, do we see what Jesus sees in the woman? So here's the story here. We're going to kind of back up here. So um, starting in verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of ointment. So the, the, the scene here is Jesus is sitting around a table with a group of Pharisees, religious leaders, people who are, you would consider um, them powerful and privileged and pretty together. Uh, they, they're not probably in a position of being frazzled. They're probably financially secure. They're probably relatively emotionally secure. They kind of have their stuff together, and the Pharisees have an interest in Jesus. They say, will you come over to our place? We have some questions about you, questions for you. Um, and then the woman hears. She's of the city, and she's a sinner. So one of the questions we have to ask is, is why is this woman of this city, and what's made her different than other women? Because especially in this first century context, uh, it would make sense to ask this question, how did this woman become a woman of the city? Did she wake up one day, say, you know, mom, I'm 18 now, I'm going to do what I want, and she moved out and she became a prostitute, or was there something more complex than that? Most likely... uh, a first century reader of this text would say, this woman's of the city, she's a sinner, and if she had had a father who was powerful or wealthy or gracious or kind, she would not be in this position. So there's some question we have to ask of, she came from some type of family system that allowed this to be a possibility. So she either has an aloof or absent father um, or a father who's also experienced tens of trials then you, the next question you ask is, where's her husband? And you say, okay, well, where's, maybe she's been disowned. Maybe she's been kicked to the curb. Um, in the first century, women didn't have a lot of opportunities to make income besides selling their bodies. And so she's surviving, doing what she can to get by. And so it's very plausible, very probable, in fact, that she was either um, or both betrayed or disowned by her husband or her father. So she's not just the town floozy, but she's someone who's been where the city beat, has beaten her down and ground her down to the point where now she's surviving, she's doing what she can. Um, and that doesn't make her less of a sinner. Just like our trauma doesn't excuse us, but it can help us empathize with people who have experienced serious pain. So she's not saying I'm not a sinner, but she's not saying... When we encounter a woman like this, we have to ask the question, how'd she get there? So she hears about this man, this person, Jesus, and you think about how this woman has so far in her life experienced men. 
probably, like I said, is probably a, a poor or absent father, and then either a poor or absent husband. And then since then, it's been men who are exchanging goods and services with her. What could possibly happen to this woman that make her think, oh, another man's in town. I'm going to go be close to him. What has she heard about Jesus? What's, what are the rumors on the street? Well, there's this man in town, and he looks at women different than other men. There's this man in town, and when women like me go to him, he treats women like me different than other men treat women like me. Something about what she'd heard about Christ, something what she heard about Jesus says, I need to go to him, I need to be with him. And so she gathers up all that she has, so she's not wealthy, she doesn't have much going for her, all she has is this alabaster flask of ointment, which is pretty expensive. A lot of times what would happen is like in the absence of like a strong banking system, you'd, you'd, you'd secure precious oils or precious um, metals, and this would kind of be your retirement plan, your savings plan, your, your exit plan. Once I get enough of this, then I won't have to do this type of work anymore. This is the way that I'm going to get out of this mess. And she takes everything she has, her, her flask that maybe is holding her savings account, and she goes and dumps it on Jesus' feet. She barges in, she rushes in. Seemingly uninvited, there's a sense of urgency in her. How do I get to be close to him? She stands behind him, verse 38 says. So these guys are sitting on a table. She stands behind him, and she starts anointing his feet. Now, if you've read the Bible before, you're going, this sounds a lot like what Jesus did to his disciples. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And so there's a sense in which this woman does before Jesus what Jesus does. She's washing feet. She's a servant here. There may even be a sense in which when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he's helping them remember. Remember I told you to be like that woman, that one who served. She stands behind him weeping, weeping so much that his feet are wet with tears. I, even just this past August, I, uh, when I first read that weeping wet with tears, I thought like, man, that's a lot of a lot of tears, you know, that's kind of ridiculous, and I spoke at this camp past past August, and there was this guy um, at this camp, this high school camp, and this guy was like, whatever the embodiment of like all the high schoolers I don't want to be around are like, you know, he's, you know, he's the too, too cool for everybody kid, you know, the guy who's like, bragging about his pornography collection and uh, super excited about like the latest strand of weed, and he's captain of the football team, and I'm just like, you're the worst, (laughs) you know, like... The, the one who thinks, like, I'm super cool, but he's, like, doing exactly what his parents did 40 years ago, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking for myself, and he's being like everybody else, and so he's in this camp, and I'm preaching, and I find, in, and even in my heart, being like, well, here's the guy who's dug his heels in, you know, um, and at the end of camp, we did this, like, kind of altar call thing, come forward and be prayed for, and here comes this guy walking down the aisle, captain of the football team, too cool for everybody, kid, and I, he put his head on my shoulder, and he was crying, and he told me about uh, the way that his father treated his mom and treated him, uh, which was bad, asterisks a lot more than that. Um, and here's like this big, tough foot, football high school kid, and he's crying so much, I feel his tears through my shoe while he's crying and I'm praying for him. It reminded me of this story. It's, there's this overwhelming sense of Finally, I can stop holding it in because this is a safe place, and so it comes out. So this woman, she, she's crying. Uh, 
Um, who knows if she cries all the time, but at least what she knows is that somehow something about this, this is a safe place where I can just let it all out. I don't have to hold it in anymore. I, I meet Jesus and I can just, it comes out. She's anointing his feet with oil, saying this, this oil is probably my exit plan, but now I've met this man, his name's Jesus, and he's probably my exit plan. I'm trading my savings for my savior. What a picture of generosity. What a picture of trust. How many of us trust in our savings accounts more than our Savior. And here's this woman as an example to us of when we meet Jesus, we, we really experience that my alabaster flask of ointment is not what's going to get me out of here. This is, so this encounter that Jesus has with her, um, then what happens is, you know, the Pharisees misinterpret her. They don't see her. They fill in the blanks. Um, not only are they misinterpreting her, they're misinterpreting Jesus. In verse 39, he says, man, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. You know, how are you letting this person, this gross woman, this disgusting person, how are you letting her touch you? If you were a prophet, you would not let that touch you. She is, her uncleanliness is contaminating you. Jesus, what are you thinking? And then Jesus responds with this parable about um, gratitude and how gratitude is what leads to this overflow of love. And if you really recognize, if you really were close to your sin, you'd be full of gratitude and full of love. And Jesus is, in a way, um, kind of um, taking a cut at Simon, saying, like, this woman gets gratitude, and that's why she's loving like this, that she understands her position. And that, that's, that's also a message to all of us, that if we find ourselves, like I did, judging this high school kid and thinking that, man, this guy's a lost cause, or if I find myself connecting the dots in ways that make me responsible for my good life and make them responsible for their bad life, if I end up kind of supposing or projecting all this judgment onto people, a lot of times what's going on is I don't have any gratitude, that I've somehow distanced myself from my sin and I've kind of minimized my sin and I'm maximizing the sin of other people. Because we do tend to give myself the benefit of the doubt and give other people no benefit of the doubt. So here's this woman's got to this position where she's not, she's so close to her sin, she's deeply aware of her sin. And what does that produce? It produces an urgency to go to Jesus and it produces a gratitude that leads to generosity. Where you have Simon who's kind of taking for granted what's going on here. Jesus is telling Simon, you've, you've kind of distanced yourself from your awareness of your sin. And you need to come close to it, just like this woman is. Then after Jesus tells this parable, this is like the, this is the, a powerful image I see here is this woman's behind him washing his feet. He's interacting with Simon, kind of face to face here. But then verse 44 says, turning towards the woman. So he looks at her. I imagine her looking back up at him, their eyes connect. And Jesus asks Simon, do you see this woman? Simon doesn't answer, probably because the question cuts him like a knife. I don't. And I imagine the redemptive moment for this woman who for the first time is, or for the first time in maybe a long, long time is getting eye contact that isn't communicating shame, that isn't communicating judgment, that isn't communicating exchange of goods and services that isn't dehumanizing that isn't frowning down she looks up she sees and Jesus looks at her like no man has looked at her in a long long time now what kind of what Simon's saying here is you know this woman's about to cause this man to stumble 
you know, if you grew up in church camp or youth camp, you know, I talked to a lot of women who are paralyzed with this perpetual fear of I'm going to cause these men to stumble because they're these kind of uncontrollable visual creatures and they have no responsibility for anything they think or do. And so there's this paralyzation of I'm going to cause men to stumble, you know, and that's not what Romans 14 is talking about. And what you even see modeled in this is Jesus can have an intimate connection with the woman of the city and still have a pure heart and still have a pure mind. Jesus is even modeling for us as men that you never get to blame women for any of your sexuality dysfunction. You never get to say, well, if she wasn't wearing that, well, you never get to say, she caused me. You, like when you have a pure heart and you see people like Jesus sees people, you don't dehumanize them. Um, I think a lot of men in this room, a lot of men in general, uh, we like saying, well, if they weren't wearing or... This is the question I think all of us men need to ask is, are we looking at women like Jesus looks at women, generally speaking? I'm talking about online, I'm talking about in person. This powerful, redemptive eye contact, that there's this connection where he sees the woman and he's telling Simon and he's telling us, do you see this woman? I feel like Jesus personally asks me this question all the time when I'm encountering people throughout my days and my weeks. Whether it's in a counseling scenario, whether it's a barista, whether it's someone at the grocery store, I hear Jesus ask me, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? And when the answer is no, I need to repent. When the answer is yes, I become curious and I ask them and I humanize them and I don't just diminish them to a role or something like that. And um, this idea of like she feels felt by him, there's a connection. I think uh, Kurt Thompson has a quote that I really appreciate. He kind of talks about transformation in the process. He says, transformation requires a collaborative interaction with one person empathetically, empathetically, am I explaining right? Empathetically listening and responding to the other so that the speaker has the experience, perhaps the first time, a feeling felt by another. This idea of feeling felt, this empathetic, connective listening that Jesus sees, the woman sees that he sees. There's something healing to that moment in and of itself. You know, Jesus doesn't give her any advice. Jesus doesn't um, even tell her what to do per se, but he receives her generosity, he receives her hospitality, and it's healing. Do you see this woman? Do we see this woman like Jesus sees this woman? Almost every time, not every time, almost every time, when I meet a woman or even a, a, a child or a person and they're over-functioning or, I mean, um, loud or um, naggy or uh, uh, frazzled, uh, you can almost always connect that to an aloof or um, disconnected father or husband this feeling of I'm not being seen, so I'm going to be seen, I'm going to speak up, I'm going to resist, I'm going to be heard, I'm going to. And so if you find that you're around people or um, not just women but people in general and there's like this reactive, anxious kind of projecting being loud, um, rather than saying like you need to chill out, what's, what's probably most helpful is you can say something about what's going on is in ha- causing them to feel like I don't see them. And I need to become curious rather than just kind of try and tell them to chill out. Because telling them, calm down, is just going to reinforce the I'm not seen um, situation. So Jesus sees this woman. He, she feels felt by him. There's something powerful going on here. So here's a kind of like where I would go 
Um, so the other thing Jesus does in this is he, he really elevates this woman. He's telling this Simon, like she's looking at her, and he says, Simon, you took me for granted. I came into your house. You didn't give me water. She's pouring this ointment on my feet. You didn't kiss me. She's kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head. She's anointing my feet. Like, you're supposed to have this Jewish hospitality thing going on, Simon, and you're blowing it, and this woman of the city is getting it more than you are. So he's, he's even telling this woman, he's telling Simon, like, you need to become like this woman. Probably for so long, Simon thought, man, if this woman would just be like me, then the world would be a better place. And Simon's, Jesus is actually recorrecting that narrative, saying, no, actually, Simon, if you'd be like this woman, then you'd be doing the right thing. And he's elevating this woman, highlighting her, demonstrating her faith. Later on, he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, faith here doesn't mean um, like optimism or positivity. Faith is a trust He's saying to her, um, your actions didn't save you. It's not like, well, good job doing the right thing, now you're saved. He's saying, your trust in me, your, your, your trust in my character, this is what's saving you. So her, her faith, her trust in Jesus drives her to perform these actions and drives her to be seen by Jesus. And so it's not even her good works in this moment that caused her to be saved. Rather, it's her faith that was behind them, her trust in him that was behind them that motivated her to show up to Jesus' feet. This is what saves her. Your faith has saved you. You trusted in me. She had heard rumors about Jesus, but she had no personal encounter. So she showed up and met him. And a lot of you might be here today because of that. You might have heard about Jesus, kind of like a second-hand, third-hand situation. I heard about this man who's going to treat me like other men don't treat me. I heard about this guy um, who's Lord and Savior, yet he's kind and gracious. I heard about him. And I just want you to know that the faith that's causing you to question, that's going, what about, have I heard about, have I thought about... um, Jesus wants to meet with you. He wants to see you. He wants you to feel felt by him so that you don't have to live on these secondhand encounters with Jesus, but you can have a personal connection with him. Um, Do you feel felt by Jesus? Do you feel like he sees you? Because he does. He really does. He sees you in the context of your history. He sees the way you've been mistreated. He sees when you've been abused. He sees the way that you sin and he still wants you. I find that when I'm the most emotionally healthy, it's when I'm walking in this awareness that Jesus sees me so I don't have to be proving myself. Do you see like Jesus? So here's the error that I made the first time I read this, is I kind of felt like, man, Jesus is for this woman. Jesus loves this woman. Jesus sees people like this woman. Man, doesn't Simon totally suck? What a loser. I hate Simon. Don't, don't, we, all, don't we all hate Simon? Let's all hate, like, raise your hand if you hate Simon. Yeah, we all hate Simon, you know, like, and there's this feeling or this sense that for me to be for this woman, I have to be against this man. Like, I, if for me to love this woman, I have to be against Simon, and I have to disparage him and say, like, man, this, I got to pick teams. I got to switch sides. I was on the side of Simon being self-righteous, but now I'm on the side of the woman, and, you know, and like, yeah, we hate those privileged religious people, and you know, he's probably a white male too, so we hate him, you know, and, and uh, you know, like this is classic white male religious privilege, we hate this guy, and, and there's this like, um, in order for me to be for the woman, this belief that I have to be against the man, or I have to be against Simon, or I have to be, but, you know, Josh Reese, who's a middle school pastor, I've heard him say multiple times, and the way that Jesus loves Simon, and I didn't see it the first couple of times, I even taught this text in August at Fuse, and I don't think I brought this out enough. Um, but the way that Jesus sees Simon, that he loves Simon. You know, uh, I think what sometimes happens in, uh, at least especially like our social media, polemicized, divisive age, there's always like something happening and people are going like, well, which side are you on? 
what are your thoughts on the boys with the Make America Great Again hats and the Covington thing and everybody's kind of like judge and jury and executioner and here, I have to pick my side. If I have to be for these people, I have to be against these people and there's this constant division, right versus left, red versus blue and we're the most divided politically than we've been and in terms of like the right, left, blue, red thing and I think that really gets into our hearts that we, at least I personally reading this text, I thought like, man, Jesus is really owning Simon. He's really putting, really putting this loser in his place can't believe Simon's so dumb. And what happens is a lot of times these social media like stuff, it leads to this really divided age. And we feel like, okay, well, you know, we got to get on the side of the poor and we need to hate the powerful and we need to, you know, and there's like this shaming action that's happening. So we were over here and now we need to be over here. And anybody who's still over there, wrong side of history, you're these bunch of, and this real kind of like social um, bandwagon jumping that's happening where I have to constantly be deciding which team am I on, which team do I hate. Um, David Brooks, who's one of my favorite journalists, um, New York Times guy, says this, the omnipresence, that means the everywhereness of social media has created a new sort of shame culture. The world of Facebook, Instagram, and the rest is a world of constant display and observation. The desire to be embraced and praised by the community is intense. People dread being exiled and condemned. Moral life is not built on the continuum of right and wrong. It's built on a continuum of inclusion and exclusion. Everybody's perpetually insecure in a moral system based on inclusion and exclusion. There's no permanent standards, just the shifting judgment of a crowd. It is a culture of oversensitivity, overreaction, and frequent moral panics during which everybody feels compelled to go along. Modern culture allegedly values inclusion and tolerance, but it can be strangely unmerciful to those who fit in. I read this story and I fall into that trap. You know, if I'm going to be for this woman, I have to be against this man. But Jesus shows us a different way, that he's somehow simultaneously both for the woman and for the man. Look at, even in this parable, he asks Simon. So he tells this story, a moneylender, this is verse 41, has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled it of both. Which one would love him more? Simon answers, the one, I suppose, whom he canceled the larger death. And Jesus says to him, you've judged rightly. What does Simon want the whole time? He wants to be a judge. He wants to be right. He wants to be the moral police. And Jesus says, you judge rightly. Here's a softball. Here's a bone. Jesus gives Simon what he wants. He kind of allows Simon to undo himself a little bit. What, you know, even as crazy as Simon invited Jesus to his house, both Simon and the woman, what they have in, in common is this curiosity about Jesus. What's this guy's deal? Simon invites him over. The interesting thing, too, that a number of scholars observe is how in verse 39 it says, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so Simon's internal dialogue is happening here. How do we know what Simon is thinking? A lot of people say it's because Simon got converted after this. Simon had this encounter with Jesus, and now Simon goes to Luke and says, let me tell you a story about how Jesus read my mind and then changed it. Do you find yourself constantly enraged and hating and frustrated with the religious right, conservatives, legalists? So a lot of times what happens is we're raised in what I would consider like a generally good Bible teaching environment, especially those who grew up in church, and then sometime like in middle school and high school, you internalize um, what was going on in your church as legalism. I don't think I've ever met a Christian in their 20s who wasn't raised in a legalistic church. 
most of that's just like our misinterpretation and our internalization that like we're in puberty and so we're like anxious and so we're like, ah, and we just mishear and we internalize things wrong. And it was legalism. That was my problem. It was their teaching. It wasn't me. Um, and then what happens is you kind of like, you, you react against the legalism and then you hate the legalists and there's this kind of shifting popular opinion of, you know, moral majority, you know, oppressed and vulnerable. And you feel like to be for one, you have to hate the other. And it's just this dysfunctional, gross thing. Jesus models an opposite way. He can be for the woman and for Simon. Uh, there's a story I heard of this guy named John Perkins. He was a civil rights leader two years after MLK was shot. Um, a group of his friends got arrested, and he went to the police station um, to see how they were doing. And when he showed up to the police station, 12 cops poured out and beat him and his friend within an inch of their life. They'd done nothing wrong. So John Perkins is an African-American man. Him and his African-American buddy went to visit their African-American friends who were in prison. 12 white cops come out and beat the living daylights out of him after his brother had already been killed by cops a couple years earlier. John Perkins is writing on this experience, and he reflects on this, and here's what he says. He says, they're like savages, talking about the 12 cops pouring out of the building, like some horror out of the night. This is in 1970 in the South. I can't forget their faces so twisted with hate. It was like looking at white-faced demons. Hate did that to them. I couldn't hate back. When I saw what hate had done to them, I couldn't hate back. I could only pity them. I didn't ever want to hate I didn't ever want hate to do to me what it had already done to those men. That night I prayed, God, if you let me get out of this jail alive, I really want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. So you don't, you don't have to be pro, if you're pro-social justice, you don't have to hate. To be hated, you don't have to hate back. This is someone who really gets the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, who says, I can absorb being hated, if it means that it, these people get to be loved. So I can't wait to get out of here and not shame these cops and not you know, go to the press and not drag them through their Twitter, which wasn't a thing, good for those guys in those days. But I, I just can't wait to be able to tell them about a Jesus who sees them and loves them even though they're full of hate. We can be for this. Do you see Simon? Do you see people like Simon? People who are privileged, powerful, rich, famous, and just assume the worst about them? Or do you see them too and see that Jesus loves them as well? Now here's the next question I have for us is, do we see that Jesus sees in himself? This is, I think, the be most beautiful part of this passage. So Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, sitting at table, they're asking, asking him questions. A woman comes in and they immediately just judge this woman. Like, but there's like this moment where the Pharisees are a little bit anxious. They're like, what's going to happen here? I want to wait. Let's see how this plays out. Let's see where this goes. What's Jesus going to do? Thinking thoughts to themselves. Jesus reads their mind, corrects them with a parable, corrects them about generosity. But what happens is you see this happens twice. Is they're judging the woman. And then instead of judging the woman, they end up judging Jesus. Right? If he, he must not be a prophet. This is in verse 39. I thought he was the real deal, but I guess not because he's associating with this woman. Verse 39. If this man were a prophet, he, wouldn't have kn he would have known who this woman is. So the first time Jesus receives their judgment by absorbing the woman's judgment is there. But the second one is um, in verse 48 when he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. 
then verse 49 says, those who are at table with them, so this group of Pharisees say to themselves, who is this who forgives sins? They're starting to think like, maybe this guy's a blasphemer. Maybe he's not just not a prophet. Maybe he's evil. Maybe he's against. And it's just crazy the way this narrative progresses, the way that it goes on, is that first they're interested in Jesus, then they see the woman and they judge her, but then over time what ends up happening is the judgment and the misunderstanding that's being projected on the woman ends up moving from her onto Jesus. That Jesus begins to stand in the gap for her socially, to advocate for her socially, to help her be seen in this situation on the table. That he begins to allow um, the judgment that she's receiving, he, he draws attention away from her and draws attention to himself. And I'm talking about negative attention. That these people who thought they had her pegged and saw her down, eventually he ends up standing in the gap and he ends up getting the brunt of their judgment. And this is the core message of the gospel. And this is a small microchasm or a small window or a small picture of what happened in ultimate history that we are being judged and Jesus steps into the gap that we who are sinners rightly offending a holy God that God looks down the Father looks down from heaven and sees that we are deserving of wrath and sees us rightly sees us as we are and Jesus intercedes he takes initiative he stands in the gap he stands in our place and judgment moves from us to Jesus such that Jesus absorbs the full wrath of our sin, such that we no longer go from being objects of judgment, but we are now objects of righteousness, of praise, of goodwill, that we are now um, born into the household of God, not because we've been good, not because um, they have changed their minds, but because Jesus absorbs the judgment in our place. That what Jesus does for this woman, he offers to all of us. Let me be judged in your place. Show up, come near to me, Trust me in faith, and I'll absorb the judgment that you had coming your way. What are we trusting in as a community, as Redemption Gateway? Are we trusting in our money, our alabaster flask of ointment? Are we trusting in being in the right position morally? Are we trusting in our ethical background? Are we trusting in our ethnic backgrounds? Are we trusting in our positions or flavors? Or are we trusting in the one, the Son of God, who absorbs our judgment on our behalf? Because if you're trusting in something else besides Jesus, besides Jesus, you're still in danger. You really are. The beautiful picture we have of this woman is someone who shows up in the middle of her stress, in the middle of her problems, in the middle of whatever it is, hears rumors about Jesus and says, I'm going to take whatever I have to him, and that he loves us. He stands in the gap. Tim Keller put it like this, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice, that Jesus allows himself to be misunderstood by these Pharisees in order to absorb the judgment that this woman had coming. So likewise, Jesus stands in our place on the cross, absorbing the sin absorbing the wrath for the sin that we committed so that we could be connected to the Father and part of a people who are representing God to the world. Do you see Jesus the way he sees himself or do you see him as Simon did at first? Say it, teacher. He's not just a teacher, he's a savior. So do you see the woman like Jesus sees the woman? Do you see Simon like Jesus sees Simon? And do you see Jesus like Jesus sees himself? Because a lot of times I don't. And I'm grateful that God's bringing me along, helping me see like he sees. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the story. Thank you for Luke who wrote it down. Thank you for um, Jesus who shows us a better way. I ask that as we respond in worship that you would continue to work in our hearts, work in our minds, and help us feel connected to you, that we'd feel felt by you, and that we would uh, sense the way that you're bringing us along. Amen.
Amen.